Hey everyone, my name is OJ Tucker, host of the OJ Tucker podcast, the only comedy tennis podcast that talks about political and societal culture as a whole. My name is OJ Tucker, as the name would suggest. Happy Tuesday. Hopefully you guys enjoyed your weekend, spending time with your family or friends, watching the Japan Open final as well, as well as the other tournaments that have been happening, such as the Stockholm Open and the Antwerp final. There's a little bit of news that we can get into for today in terms of news outside the tennis world. I do want to discuss my overall thoughts on Martin Scorsese's new film, Killers of the Flower Moon. I recently watched this as of yesterday, and it was a pretty good film. I really enjoyed my my, my time while watching this film. I do consider it one of the better films of the year, which really isn't saying that much because there hasn't really been that many great films as of this past year. Uh, but I do think that this is one of, the, one of the better films of the year, and I did enjoy my time while watching this film. Um, it clocks in at around 3 hours and 26 minutes, and... While it is a pretty long film, I do think that the film paces itself well, especially with the third act. I felt like as I felt as if the third act was very reminiscent of Oppenheimer, where there was a long drawn out trial scene, a lot of discussions and communications with with characters within the film. In a lot of ways, it did remind me a lot like Oppenheimer, especially with that last act of that movie. Obviously, different stories, but overall, it, it had that sort of Oppenheimer-like feel to it. Uh, but I did enjoy my time while watching this film. And obviously, I'll get more into it uh, later in the podcast. Uh, but definitely go watch it. Definitely, if you're into Scorsese, definitely go watch it. I don't know if it's my favorite Scorsese film that he's ever released. I won't go as far as to say that. I still prefer Silence. Um, I still prefer other films that he's made uh, over this, but that doesn't mean uh, that this film is bad by any way. It, it is a good film, so definitely go watch it. I also want to discuss RFK Jr. in the polls that essentially illustrate that he has a good chance of being a viable third-party candidate. Uh, I want to give you my overall thoughts on that. Uh, obviously, I'm not the biggest RFK Jr. fan. I think he's a little bit too pro-Israel for my liking. I feel as if he's a little too overly pro-Israel where he can't really understand that it is somewhat of an of, of an apartheid state. Um, I don't know, just my opinion though. You know, I, I just find it a little bit too nauseating at times. And I think if anything, that tweet that he sent out or that post that he sent out on X which now, yeah, got to call it X now. And it's not it's no longer a tweet, it's a post. Uh, that post that he made on X.com uh, was quite concerning, in which, if you guys don't know, I, I talked about it last week, I think. I'm pretty sure I talked about it last week or the week before. Uh, but he tweeted out in terms of, like, how we got to be more pro-Israel and how, you know, we got to make Palestinians pay, something along the lines of that, where it, it just felt as if he just sort of tanked his own campaign by tweeting that. Um, but yeah, well, I, I do want to discuss that, that RFK Jr. is pulling at third in the polls and what it means. And I don't know if he'll spend the entire time talking about it, but definitely I think it's worthy of your attention because there was a poll done by NPR PBS. So we'll talk about that. But let's first get into some tennis news and some tennis matches that have happened. So if you guys don't know, Aslan Karatsev and Ben Shelton played yesterday at the Tokyo Open Final as Ben Shelton beats Aslan Karatsev in straight sets, 7-5, 6-1. This was a really good match for Ben Shelton. Um, overall, as we've come to expect with the U.S. Open, 
you know, this is a man that you have to really keep it. Sorry. You know, so as I mentioned before with, uh, with Ben Shelton, you know, I think this is a man that you have to really keep in, in mind when we think about the future of tennis. And I don't necessarily think that he will be in the likes of, say, Carlos Alcaraz or Yannick Sinner. I, I just don't think so. But I do think in terms of American men's tennis, he is a man that you have to think of. You know, and a lot of people may have their preconceived notions on Ben Shelton, right? They, they'll look at him and gauge him based off of what he did at the U.S. Open, right? Where he had the whole sort of phone celebration and, you know, Djokovic kind of retaliated or maybe not retaliated, but, you know, did it in his favor when he won against him. And, you know, you saw his dad get involved between the B between him and Novak, you know, so... Already, we already know a little bit about Ben Shelton, and the impression that we get from Ben Shelton is one of which is not necessarily ideal. Uh, he doesn't really give a favorable impression to anybody when you first see him. You know, when you look at him, you know, again, this is no hate on his looks or anything, but when you look at him, you're like, what is this Jackson Mahomes kid doing on the tennis court, right? Like, that's what you think of. Like, like when you see him, you're like, okay, buddy, like, wrap up your TikTok you know, go back home and 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 do do God knows what else. You know, that's the impression you get from Ben Shelton. You know, you get this sort of TikTok. I think he also has like that broccoli cut, you know, uh, haircut as well. So that des- definitely does not add to it. Um, but I do think behind all that or beneath all that lies a really competitive tennis player that is willing to do anything in his power to win. And I think that that should be the main takeaway from this tournament. You know, when you saw his wins against Taro Daniel, uh, Tommy Paul, um, you know, some some great some great wins in the lead up to this match. I, I think what it really goes down to, what it really shows to you, is that he's really able to commit to playing, and that he, if he's in that mindset to compete, he will compete. And I think that's what we're going to see from him for the next few years or so. I think that he'll be like an under-the-radar kind of guy that will show up, especially during the majors, and be this sort of dark horse candidate. And I think wins like this kind of somewhat illustrate that. So anyways, Ben Shelton beats Aslan Karatsev, 7-5, 6-1. And um, yeah, let's just get right into that first set, shall we? So I was able to watch it last night, or yesterday, that is, not last night, but yesterday. And uh, I'll just recap it for you guys. So the first set, very, very competitive between the two players. But I do think that as if the break that happened in the later part of that first set was the key differentiating factor between these two players. So let's get right into that first set. So Shelton, wide return serve, gets, gets Aslan the hold to make it one love. Great passing shot by Shelton, gets him the hold. Uh, great net game uh, for Shelton early on to establish that that style of play early on. I thought that was really good. Uh, so he makes it one all. Forehand by Shelton is dead of the net as Karatsev makes it 2-1 with the hold. Passing shot by Karatsev goes long as Shelton adds pressure to the net to hold on love to make a 2 all. Again, Karatsev, not Karatsev, um, Shelton really did his best at establishing dominance early on. Getting to the net early, you know, having these amazing serves, first serves, amazing first serves. You know, not having that much of a of a difference in terms of his second serve. You know, still having great serves, you know, getting it into the box. You know, I think all of that was 
really adding up to Shelton into this match and leading up to this match as well. Um, so yeah, um, passing job by Kratzov goes long as Shelton has pressure. Yeah, so he holds on love to make a two wall. Kratzov holds to make a three two. Another great serve. Another great serve by Shelton unreturned by Kratzov to hold to make a three all. Kratzov holds to make a four three. So overall, Kratzov was doing his best to make it so uncompetitive. And while by no means did I think Karatsev could break Ben Shelton's serve, it was nice to see uh, Karatsev at least make it competitive and at least make it fun and enjoyable to watch, especially for that first set. Second set, not so much, but in that first set, you saw it, a competitiveness within Karatsev. Uh, so yeah, Karatsev holds to make it 4-3. Shelton holds on love to make it 4-all after a wide forehand down the line by Karatsev. Karatsev holds as stretch volley by Shelton goes back onto his side to make it 5-4. Shelton Shelton's back-to-back aces gets him the love hold to make a five all. Again, just beautiful, great, great. I mean, Karatsev I literally had no answer, and I felt like, in a lot of ways, while that wasn't him giving up per se, I felt as if that was an out or an in per se for Shelton to be like, you know what, I'm I'm just gonna hold on to this. I'm gonna hold on to this lead. I'll have these amazing serves, whether it's to the T or whether it's wide serves. Um, and, and I think he really was able to capitalize off of that momentum because of Karatsev's inability to adequately return serve with those two aces, or really give an effort to return serve with those two aces. Um, so yeah, overall back-to-back aces gets him a love hole five ball. Return serve by Shelton was too much for Karatsev as forehand by Aslan is dead in the net to make it 6-5. Shelton with the break. Uh, Serving volley by Shelton is too much for Kratzev as Aslan hits a long forehand for Shelton to take the first set 7-5. So overall, that break made all the difference in the world. And again, Shelton was just, from the very beginning, able to establish dominance. He was able to get to the net early and often. He was able to have these amazing volleys, have these amazing serves. In a lot of ways, I do think that he is the more mobile, more agile version of John Isner. You know, it's kind of weird and kind of fitting that as soon as Isner retires, we see the rise of Shelton, you know. So it is interesting to see that uh, juxtaposition play out. But in a lot of ways, he is the more athletic version of John Isner. He's not as tall as, say, John Isner is, but I definitely do think that in a lot of ways, his playing style reminds me of, say, John Isner. Um now, does that mean he'll be a serve ball through and through? No. I mean, he did have some long rallies in that first set and in that second set as well. So I don't think that that'll be an issue. I don't think he'll just be a serve ball kind of player. Um, but yeah, I, I do think that that is a man that he will be sort of looking into. Actually, let, let me let me uh, change that uh, comparison. I don't think Isner's the right comparison to make there. I think in a lot of ways... His play definitely does remind me of Nikirios. It really does. Like the serves, the height, the attitude off courts. It does remind me a lot. We're seeing early glimpses of Nikirios, but just the American version Nikirios. That's what we get from Ben Shelton. And a lot of people may dislike that comparison. I I don't care. To me, it makes the most amount of sense. And I think that in a lot of ways... It, it, it does ring true. So from now until the foreseeable future, I do think that Ben Shelton reminds me of Nick Kyrgios. Um, but anyways, first set, awesome, awesome win for Shelton. He gets the one love on sets one. 
heading into the second set, it was all Shelton. That second set was all Shelton. Once Shelton broke, it was all over. You know, as soon as he was able to make it 2-1, he did not see, he, he did not turn back. He did not go back on his on his play. He was able to be committed to the to the match, stay with it, and it was just amazing to see. Uh, so Shelton retrieves drop shot, but forehand down the line is long as Kratzev holds to make it one love. Return serve by Kratzev goes long as Shelton makes it one all. Clean forehand down the line by Shelton makes it two one as he breaks. Um, yeah, and that was just a clean forehand down the line, like really very clean forehand down down the line. Return serve instead of the net as Shelton holds on love to make it 3-1. So again, just establishing dominance with the hold, uh, love on hold. Uh, or hold on love, that is. Uh, Shelton comes back from love 40 with a forehand down the line clean winner to break 4-1 after a string of errors by Kratzev in the game. And again, that was a very telling, telling uh, win for, for Shelton. Because during that entire ordeal, Kratzev was just not in it, per se. Like, there was a slice volley that was just not in the confines of the singles court. Uh, I think there was a racket abuse at Deuce because he hit like a long forehand or a long ground stroke that was just not within the vicinity of the court. And he just decided to break his racket on, on, on the court. And again, I'm pretty sure he got racket abuse for that. I mean, I would consider that racket abuse. That's just not the right way of playing it. It just isn't. You know, if this was Djokovic, literally our forward slash tennis would be like, Oh my God! Can you believe Novak Djokovic was was abusing his racket on the court? Oh my God! This is what happens when you don't take the vaccine. You know, I'm sure that there's so many comments on that on the subreddit for tennis or and on Twitter. If Novak Djokovic would, would be was that guy, if Novak Djokovic was that guy to break his racket at Deuce, do you know the amount of vitriol that Djokovic would get for doing that? I, I know, like I'm sort of deviating away from the point or, or or heading away from the conversation but it does ring true like that would happen if if that were to occur um so yeah overall racket abuse said deuce not ideal um but i definitely do think that shelton was in oslan kratzev's head especially in that game and i think the racket abuse definitely signaled the the beginning of the end for kratzev Anyways, back into the uh, summary of it. A return serve goes wide as Shelton holds on love to make it 5-1. Long forehand by Kratzev allows Shelton to break yet again and win the match with a 6-1 second set. Overall, just amazing, flawless win for Shelton in that second set. Kratzev had no business being in that second set whatsoever. Uh, as soon as he saw that break, it was all over. But again, this was a great, stellar victory for Shelton. And I think that... While this match doesn't really mean that much in the grand scheme of things, I do think that this is a signal for good things to come for Shelton. Uh, do I think he will be in the mix of, say, Taylor Fritz or or Tiafu or the likes of them? No, I don't think so. I, I think that there is a different tier amongst those players with Shelton. But again, he's still a very young guy as it is. I mean, he's 20, 21, you know, so who knows what will happen for him in the next few years to come uh, but overall it's nice it's nice to see him uh get that win it's nice to see him get that dub uh hopefully we're able to see more of that in the future for for ben shelton and just for american tennis in general because i do think that american tennis needs it now more so than ever before um 
again, there are more parts of him where it can be easy to dislike him, right? The celebration of the phone, you know, sla- slapping it down and then get- getting mad at Djokovic for doing the same thing to him and having his dad get involved in that entire ordeal and that entire situation, not favorable to him, is not a good look for him. Um, yes, as I mentioned before, he does have the look of a TikToker, which does definitely offset me. Uh, it doesn't upset me. It does, it's just something that I look at and say to myself, get a haircut, you know, just, just, uh, just, uh, you know, you know, it's a little too much. I'm not going to lie. Um, it's weird to see a TikToker out in public, especially one who looks like Jackson Mahomes. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of things that you can look at him and say that you dislike him. And a lot of that I think is quite valid. But at the same time, he's still young, right? He's still a kid. So I, I think in a lot of ways, this is just growing pains. I think at some point or another, he will mature or he, or he will age. And when he once he does mature and once he does age, I think you will see a different personality. But for now, I still think that the comparisons to Nikirios are quite apt. They're quite well regarded. You know, I, I don't think that it is out of this world to say that Ben Shelton reminds me of Nick Kyrgios because I think there are a lot of similarities between the two of them. I really do think so. Um, so, again, this is a nice, nice victory for Ben Shelton. Uh, hopefully we can see more of that in the future. Um, but again, as, as I've said before, when matters is bigger tournaments, you know, there are bigger peaks and valleys for tennis players. You know, again, this is cool, nice, Congrats to him on the win. But again, in the grand scheme of things, the majors still matter. The majors still matter. And the majors, the grand slam, will always be the pinnacle of tennis. You know, so until then, let's, you know, let's do our best to not project here. Let's not, let's do our best and make sure that we're not overly, overly predicting and projecting what we want to see Shelton do. Because if we do that, then you're just bound to be disappointed, right? If if the goal for tennis discussions is to make sure that we are as honest as possible, but also being as realistic as possible, then to insinuate that Shelton has the ability to win multiple majors or is on track to win multiple majors, I think that that in and of itself is foolish thinking. Um, because I've been definitely guilty of that in the past. I mean, I have. I've definitely been guilty of that. So I think for now, what matters is what and let Shelton enjoy the victory. But if I was on Shelton's team, I would say, hey, man, like this win doesn't really matter. You know, it's cool. It's cool. It's nice. You got some hardware under yourself, you know, you can put in in the garage, I guess. But in the in the grand scheme of things, what matters is the major. What matters is the Australian Open, it's the FO, it's Wimbledon, it's the USO. Those are the majors that matter. Those are the trophies that ultimately matter. Not this one. It's nice, but it really doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. You know, greatness has not been defined by whoever wins the Japan Open. Right? Greatness is defined by what happens in those four majors. And if you're able to build off of that success... You know, so um, that's what I would be telling myself if I was in Ben Shelton's team. Uh, by the way, congrats to Alexander Bublik on his Antwerp final win. 
as well as uh, major congratulations to Gail Monfils on his win at Stockholm. Uh, congrats to those two players as well. I was not able to watch those two matches. I was quite busy over the past week, over the past few days. Uh, I had to open for Andr- Andrea Jin at a Roar Comedy Club in Springfield. So I had to do a lot of driving back and forth. But overall, it was pretty fun. I enjoyed my time while being there. I wouldn't say it's like an ideal comedy environment at Roar. The ceilings are definitely high. It's definitely spread out. It's not really ideal for a comedy room. It's not like the other rooms that are like that are in Boston per se. I mean, it's not Laugh Boston, obviously. Uh, it's not really Nick's comedy stuff either. Um, you know, it's a little bit difficult to, in my opinion, have like an amazing set there because even when you tape your set, you know, because of how spacious everything is it's difficult to even hear the laughs in your tape. So you could be at Roar Comedy Club on stage and hear laughs on stage, but when you're, you know, recording it on your tape, you'll be like, did I, did I bomb? Like, like, did I do horrendous in this room? But it's like, no, it's because of how spacious the room is. Uh, so yeah, I, over the weekend, I opened for Andrea Jin, very funny comic. Definitely go follow her on her Instagram and TikTok. Um, I think she's from Vancouver, but now does comedy in LA and I'm pretty sure she'll be back in Boston by like November 5th. I'm pretty sure. I think she's doing a Sunday show. Um, but yeah, I was quite busy, uh, for the past two days, three days, barely had any sleep. Uh, I think the most amount of sleep I had, uh, was today actually. Um, so it's been, been an interesting few days. Um, but yeah, overall, that's what I had been doing, um, just opening for other comedians, hosting for other comedians, that is. Um, a lot of people hate hosting, and I understand why. Uh, it is difficult. You're essentially biting the bullets. You're, you know, you're, when you're a host, you're essentially just Steve Nash. You're just dishing it out to other comedians so that they can do well. Um, it, you're just there to imply that there is a comedy show happening and just get the jokes underway. That that's what your your that's what your job as a host is to do. Is to be a hype man, you know, tell him to tip the bartender, tell him where the bathrooms are, tell him where the exits are in case of emergency, tell him to make noise, tell him to make more noise, get your jokes underway, tell him to make more noise and then introduce the next comedian. I mean, that's what you're just supposed to do, <laughs> you know that. I mean, it, it, that's your job as a host. So it's not ideal. Hosting for a comedy show not ideal if you're a comedian, but it is what it is. You got to handle it. You know, when you're starting out in comedy or when you're just doing comedy in general, um, these are the gigs that you got to do. And you know, it's it, I I actually don't mind it per se because I do like being able to be in an actual comedy club setting, you know, which is such a rare occasion, especially in my position where I'm just on bar shows and I'm at comedy shows where it's just, just not in an ideal place per se. You know, you're just doing it in some random suburb in Massachusetts and you're just performing in front of a bunch of older people. I mean, this comedy club was no different though. It was like a bunch of older people as well, which I'm, I'm kind of getting tired of older people because I, I don't hate older people per se, but I do feel as if older people a lot of times are like, oh, these new Gen Z kids, they're, they're so sensitive. They, they get offended so easily. And then when I say a joke that is somewhat blue or somewhat dark, they're the ones that get hot and bothered by it. I'm like, you can't have it both ways. You can't 
crap on Gen Z for being sensitive and then also be sensitive over the most banal jokes ever told. You know, like I don't, I don't, I don't get it. I don't get older generations. I don't, I don't get the boomers. I, I really don't. I feel like the boomers ruined our generation and ruined our our world in in general. Um, so yeah. Anyways, um, that's what I've been doing. Uh, I've been performing at uh, Springfield, MGM Springfield. That's where Angie Jin was at, and I was uh, performing there as well. Uh, very difficult to find the comedy club because you have to walk through a casino. And by the way, I'm not a fan of casinos. Like, I'm I'm not a gambling guy. Uh, anybody who knows me knows that like casinos are just not for me. Like, talk about old. Like, if you want to think about like geriatric central, like just go to any casino ever. Like, you'll just see a bunch of like older people just ruining their lives just by playing the slots. It, it's kind of depressing. Like, being at a casino is probably the most depressing thing you'll ever be at. Because yeah, while there is like a high to it, there is like an emotional high being there there's like there there is a there is a few glimmers of, of or a few moments where it is fun when you're with your boys or whatnot but then after a while reality sets in and you're like this place is quite disgusting like you like they're like people you know trying to i don't know and I don't know, get their dick wet, I guess, you know, just for lack of a better term. Uh, you know, there are people out there that, uh, I mean, I don't know if, if it's like that at MGM Springfield. Not like that. It's it's not like that. But it's just, after a while, you're like, just get me out of here. You know, I'm sure it's like, it's like Vegas in a lot of ways where as soon as you're in Vegas for like a day or two, you're like, okay, just get me out of here. I get it. The novelty is wearing off right now. So get me out of here. Um, but yeah, overall, open for Andrea Jen. Very funny person. Very comfy, funny comic. Uh, definitely if she's headlining if she, if she's in your area definitely go follow her and uh, go go uh go go support her because uh if you're watching this i assume you're not that old and you can take jokes and maybe you might be old like physically but that doesn't mean they're old mentally so definitely definitely uh buy tickets to see andrea jen perform because i don't want to she does not deserve she doesn't deserve to have older people at her shows, not understanding the references she's making and not understanding the jokes she's telling. So definitely go support her because old people, I'm sorry, old people, uh, you guys just ruin comedy shows, man. You just, you just do. I, I don't know what it is. I don't know why that's the case. I have no idea why, but for some reason, it's more often than not, not all the time. I don't want to generalize here, but there are times where they can absolutely ruin a comedy show. You know, I remember I told one joke in particular and, and like I heard a woman in the audience be like, nope, nope. I'm like, really? Like a joke that is rather tame in general is is a no worthy. It's someone it's something that you shake your head and say no at. Like what? What? Like why? I don't know. Weird vibes, weird vibes. Anyway, so let's get into our uh, next topic for today. So if you guys don't know, uh, there's been a new polling that's been coming out that implies or that suggests that RFK Jr. can make a viable third-party run. Uh, so this is from NPR CBS. I think they had a poll out of this. Uh, but we'll, we'll, I'll just read the poll for you. So it says, hypothetical three-way presidential contest. So from this poll, it says Biden is at 44%. Trump is at 37%, Kennedy is at 16%, and 3% are undecided. Um, so again, undecided could be other Republican candidates, it could be other Democratic candidates, could be Green Party, 
corner of the list. Um, Marianne Williamson, who knows who knows what undecided is in this in this regard in this aspect. Um, but overall, if I'm Kennedy, I'm jumping with joy because I think in a lot of ways, and for the past few months, he's turned a rather interesting campaign into one that is rather milk toast. You know, he's turned a campaign where he was picking up on a lot of issues that to this day are still ring true. I mean, the idea of being anti-war and not running a pro-war state that we are in right now, you know, a campaign that focuses on the, on, you know, not having another pandemic happen again by not enforcing lockdowns and mandates. I think these are all policies that are winning positions. I really do think so. But over time, over the past few months, RFK Jr. has turned into a I know I said Zionist early on, maybe that's a little bit too harsh, but he's been overly pro-Israel in a lot of ways. And his inability to acknowledge that Israel is an apartheid state, adding to the fact that he recently tweeted out a tweet or posted on X, uh, tweeting out strongly condemning, you know, Palestinians and, and whatnot. You know, all of that suggests that with each tweet that he puts out in support of Israel or in support of, of the, the state of Israel that they're doing and how he's in favor of retaliation on Israel's part on Palestine, you know, all of that is to suggest that I don't think that he's, un, he's aware of what made his campaign so great to begin with. You know, and when you see him torpedo away from those policies and those positions, it's kind of difficult for me to support him. It kind of is. You know, I, I for me, I'm I'm not a supporter of RFK Jr. It's not because of of anything else besides that. I'll be very honest here. Like, if if RFK Jr. could revert back to his old styles and old policies of being critical of the war state and also being critical of Israel, or or just in a way that it sh- sheds a light on Israel, where he's not being overly dogmatic on Israel and, and their policies, I think. In a lot of ways, that could get me to vote for him. But for me personally, once I saw that tweet from him, when Hamas attacked Gaza, or when a Hamas attacked Israel, when I saw that tweet of his where he was like, we need to support the full-on retaliation of the Israelis on the Palestinian people, I was like, okay, I'm checked out of this conversation. I, I'm done. I'm done. I know he didn't say the exact words as I said, but the way that he framed that tweet still was pretty bad it, it was pretty bad to say it in that regard in that direction and for me i just could not support him and because of that i'm undecided as well so i'm in that undecided uh polling right now uh, i'm not supportive of biden because obviously biden has his own issues and plus he has dementia so i can't support a guy who has dementia to be in office he's just unfit to be in office with trump i i find him to be a con artist a snake oil salesman a guy who routinely routinely um swindles his own fan base more than anybody else like you can talk all the crap you want about aoc about the squad and yes they're not perfect and yes they have their issues and yes i do not like them I, i'm not a fan of of anybody on the squad but at least they don't go to the lengths that trump does in terms of literally separating money from his own supporters wallet like i've never seen a person i've never seen a person with so much loyal support that is rather unwarranted because if you really think about what trump did in four years during his time in office what did he truly do he gave steve mnuchin the keys to everything 
And because of that, we got a tax cuts bill that really was antithetical to what he wanted or that he campaigned on back in 2016. He essentially gave more power to Israel. Um, the I heart support of Israel uh, continued every war that Obama, Bush, and every other president started. Uh, did continued and exacerbated militaristic action in Yemen. Uh, it, there's just so many things that Trump has done where I just don't see him to be a good fit for the White House. I just don't. Uh, again, I know RFK Jr. and Biden have their issues, right? But it's not to the same extent as, say, Trump. Um, so I don't like Biden. I don't like Trump. don't like RFK Jr. either. I'm rather undecided. I, I don't think I want to vote in this election. I just don't think so. I mean, first off, going to an elementary school or to a nearby school to vote is painstaking because you got to wake up early to beat the lines, beat the traffic. Uh, so that, that in and of itself is an issue. Um, and personally for me, why waste my time? Like, what is my ROI if I decide to wait in a poll and vote for Biden, Trump, and Kennedy? You know, three people that I just don't vibe with politically. You know, like, what is my incentive to do that? You know, what is my ROI by doing that? You know, these are the these are the, the, the thoughts that I have as I age, as I grow older. You know, I mean, I'm turning 25 in two days. Like, 26 is my birthday. I'm, uh, I'm, this, is, this is being released on 24th, on the 24th. I'm turning 25 in, in, in two days. You know, I'm entering into the, into the midway point of my 20s. And when you enter your midway point into your 20s, what, what you truly mat, what you truly value, and what you truly focus on is how am I spending my time? Am I spending my time wisely? You know, what is my ROI by doing this particular thing over that particular thing? You know, and as of this moment in time, I just don't see the need for me to be in a voting booth and vote for three candidates that I just don't support at all. I just don't. Um, for RFK Jr., I will say that in terms of the less of the evils, I will say that RFK Jr. is what is the lesser of the evils of Biden and Trump. But I'm not going to vote for the lesser of the two evils. I'm not going to vote for the lesser of the evils. I'm just not. I mean, why would I? You know, it, I, it, I will support you if I truly think that your campaign is great. And out of these three, I just don't think that they're that great. With Marianne Williamson, that is debatable. I will say that is debatable. I don't think that she's being as vigilant as she possibly can about her campaign i really don't think so i think she's going through like a bernie route where she's trying to be nice and placate to the democrats to a little to a certain extent but not be overly too critical of the party otherwise she'll be like blacklisted from the ballot or, for, or, or from votes but i do think that marianne has some good ideas um i just don't think that she's taking the campaign as seriously as i want her to you know it's i mean yeah she's still putting in a lot of time and effort to it i guess i understand that but I still think that there's still room to be done for that campaign to get some traffic. Um, so yeah, I mean, overall, I, I just have no horse in this race. I really don't. I wish all the men, all the guys, all the all the candidates uh, the best of luck because I, for one, don't see myself voting for any of these people. I just don't. I just, I, I mean... If you're a fan of Trump, Biden, 
RFK Jr., that's on you. That's up to you. Uh, I'm not going to tell you how to vote. I don't want to be that guy that tells you, oh, oh, you're a dummy for voting for Trump or, oh, you're an idiot for voting for Biden. I, I don't want to be that guy that, said, that says that, okay? Uh, but I do find it difficult to vote for these candidates when I see them routinely fall flat on their face by by saying policies that are genuinely and generally speaking unpopular unpopular to the average voter you know like does the average voter care about how much aid we give to israel does does the average voter care does the average voter really need to know like how much aid we give to israel like if we told them how much money we gave to israel and ukraine the majority of people will be like, that's too much money. Like, why can't we save that at home? Why can't we spend that on healthcare? Why can't we spend that on our, on our, on our uh, active duty military veterans? Or, or, you know, on our veterans. I don't know why I said active duty military veterans. I mean, that's kind of a oxymoron there. But um, why can't we spend that on veterans? You know, our veterans are currently, the majority of veterans nowadays, or the majority of our homeless nowadays are veterans. You know, and to see them go out, go on the streets, you know, injecting themselves with heroin and, 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 and ending their life or in, in a rather early route. How, what does that say about our country when we can't properly house them, you know, or we, we can't properly help them out? You know, I mean, there's so many issues that we have here in America that if you told the average person what we give to an aid to Ukraine and Israel, they'll be like, no, why are we doing that? Give it to people in America, you know. But anyways, um, overall, I have no horse in this race, and I wish all the people, all the candidates, the best of luck, because they'll need it. They will need it. All right, uh, let's get into our last topic for today before we end this podcast. So I recently watched Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon, and overall, it is a great film. I highly suggest you guys watch it. It's one of my favorite films of the year. Um, while I don't think that this film is as great as, say, Oppenheimer was, there are still a lot of memorable moments that I think will carry on, and I definitely do think that, that this will be in the best picture consideration for the Oscars. It just will. Um, again, I watched this film yesterday uh, at AMC, and overall, there were a lot of older people there like a lot of older people always i know that on twitter they say oh there's a lot of young people watching killers of the flower moon and i don't disagree with that yeah, I mean, i'm sure in the more sort of you know city areas it is like that but a lot of older people were were at this theater it was the average age besides me and like a few others um was like 50 50 going on to 60 Maybe maybe even older, I would say, like like seventy, like sem like honestly, I think the average age was like seventy. It was like it was old central, and I don't mind it because honestly, they're not on their phones. That's the one thing that I will give the older generation like a pass on is that when they're at the theater, they're not on their phones. They're not on Snapchat seeing if their you know their 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 crush is is snapping them. Or I don't I, I've never I haven't been on Snapchat for like the past like five years, so I don't know what the actual terminology is anymore. Um, but for the older people, they're not invested in Snapchat. They're not checking their story every 10, 15 minutes to see if if a woman that they can't talk to uh, check their story, you know, like like some people that I will not name that, uh, that uh, you know, that are there, you know. I'm just saying that there are a few people, you know, 
that that you know uh, do that. Uh, but you know they're they're not doing that. You know they're not on Meta, doom scrolling through Meta. You know finding out what Chrissy Teigen posted. Right? They're just there to watch the movie. Um, but with that comes a lot of bathroom breaks for them. I mean, I think there were like times where I saw like people take like three or four bathroom breaks, like single individuals. Like I saw like one dude go outside for pee for to go to the bathroom, like three or four separate locations. I'm like, this is definitely an older crowd. Um, but yeah, overall, was able to watch it. Uh, watched it with my usual combo, raisinets and water, which is a solid combo. Uh, I want I want to get some popcorn, but I was like, eh. I already ate, you know, I don't want to eat more than I have to. Um, so overall, watched it with raisin and some water. Stay, my standard combo. Uh, don't really drink soda, so I don't drink soda at all, to be honest with you. Um, so yeah, I don't know why I went on a diatribe over my eating habits. But uh, anyways, watch Killers of the Fire Moon, and yes, it's great. Uh, some great performances in this film. Obviously, there's been a lot of discussion about DiCaprio and De Niro, but I think... Lily Gladstone also did a really good job in this film, um, playing Molly Burkhardt. You know, to be that emotionless on camera, on camera, to be that emotionless on camera, but still show so much emotion, is impeccable. You know, I definitely do think that Lily Gladstone as Molly Burkhardt was an amazing performance. I thought she did a great job. You know, to, just, to be that emotionless, but still show that much emotion was just so beautiful to see. It really was. Um, so I, I think that she will be up for an Oscar as well. I mean, obviously, DiCaprio will be up for an Oscar. Uh, that one-shot take of him answering questions under oath, I think that's sort of, that was his Oscar moment. Like, that's the, that, if, if you had to show a specific clip of that movie, of his performance... For the Oscars, that's that clip. That is that clip. Not the over, over, over acting of him crying in, in that jail cell. All right. I, I understand, like, he's sad. All right. But when I saw, like, DiCaprio crying in his jail cell, like, that kind of took me out of the movie. Like, I'm not going to lie. I understand. It's very emotionally gut wrenching. And I don't want to spoil it for you because if, if you haven't watched the movie, uh, and it's only been out for three or four days, so I, I'm not going to spoil it for you. So, by that scene where he's crying in his jail cell at the end, I, I'm not giving you the context for why he's crying in the jail cell, but when he's overly crying in the jail cell, that nearly took me out of the movie. It really did. Um, so if Leo DiCaprio does get nominated for an Oscar, which he will for this movie, I'm, I mean, I'm not a betting man, but if I was, I would put money on that. Uh, that is the clip. Him under oath answering questions in regards to the murders of, of okay, I won't spoil it. I won't spoil it. Uh, but yeah, that's the that's the clip. Uh, I was, but honestly, I was pleasantly surprised by, by Robert De Niro. Because over the past few years, De Niro hasn't been on the same caliber as an actor as he once was. I think that's fair to say that, right? He hasn't been the same actor as he once was. And... Maybe it's with Meet the Fockers. Maybe that's like what caused all of this. But De Niro was amazing in this film. You know, playing this absolutely dark character who was responsible for the mass murders of people in this film was impeccable. 
It was, you literally played that slimy sort of mafia, mafioso type character in ways that I haven't seen him play that before. You know, again, I know Scorsese is known for making mafia movies. And while this is by no means a mafia movie per se, there are elements of said mafia movies in this movie. You know, like the act of, of, doing crimes with the family, the act of, you know, getting closer and closer to money to the point where you put your own relationships at risk because of that, because of your overall fixation on attaining money, no matter what the consequences are, no matter what the lens you have to go through. I think all of that is are themes and elements that we've seen in other Scorsese movies that he does a really good job at with this movie. You know, I think in this film that I, the one knock that I have for this film, and not necessarily a knock for the film, uh, but the one knock that I have for this film is there there was a lack of subtlety with this film. You know, where I felt like the themes were just, were just ham-fisted into you. You know, they were just, like, time and time again, they were just shown to you. And I feel like, in a lot of ways, I do like a little bit of subtlety. You know, I, I do like a little shade of gray within the black and white. You know, I think with Oppenheimer, I think a fellas of Nolan did a great job of that, you know, showcasing the subtlety, you know, is Oppenheimer the good guy for creating the atom bomb and, you know, having world peace or is he the bad guy? I felt as if, if there was a little bit more subtlety with it, personally for me, I would have enjoyed the film a little bit more. But again, I feel like for what it was trying to convey, I don't mind it for being this overly messaged you know i really don't because when you really look into this film and, and when you really detail or when you really understand the osage tribe and how they're able to gather their wealth and riches and how all of that was just taken away from them on a whim you know it's hard to not feel overly defensive or those group of people you know it's it's hard to feel you know any sort of sympathy or, or any sort of you know support for Ernest Burkhart and for De Niro's character you know it is um but yeah overall um this was a good film you know I, I've said that before I'll say it again it's a great film uh great cinematography by Rodrigo Prieto and yeah I mean he, he just amazing there was like this opening shot where I, there were a few Native Americans just dancing in oil it looked to be oil. I'm pretty sure it was oil. Uh, but it was like an opening shot of it where they were just dancing in oil. And it was just the most beautiful shot I think I've ever seen in film. Like it re- like at that moment when I, when I was watching it in the, in, in, the, in the theater, I was like, this is just such a beautiful shot. Like it, it felt like, I mean, I might be a little bit hyperbolic here with the comparison. I, I might be a little bit, this might be a little bit too much of a, of a, compliment you know but it really did feel like watching it like a Jodorowsky film or whatnot where it's like it was just overly bright the visuals were just so colorful that it was just so welcoming and holy where like oh my god this is just an amazing shot it really was even the last shot where there or there was like this like native indian dance and they're all dancing in like the circle showcasing that you know their culture still intact i mean that's what i that's how i sort of 
interpreted that scene to be or like they were just like still overly supportive of their own culture despite you know people doing their best to take their culture away from them i thought that was very beautiful as well uh the one thing that i felt as if people haven't really discussed with this film that i thought was quite telling was the gruesomeness of the murders when you saw people getting murdered in this film it was mostly done in one take there was no music to build up to the murder. There was no CGI mess or glob to take you out of the film. It was just done in one take. And I really think that that elevated the harshness of the crimes that Leo DiCaprio's character and De Niro's character put these Osage tribe members through. You know, So I, I think that that really added a lot to the film. Um, which I think that shows you just how different Scorsese is from every other director. I mean, this is the greatest director of our lifetime. You know, you may not like his recent films, or you may not particularly enjoy this film, but if anything, I think that this goes to show you that he's still able to deliver hits, even his even at his age. He's still able to give you critically amazing films. And I know a lot of people will criticize the runtime that is three hours and 26 minutes long for me like i thought the pacing was great um will i ever watch this film again probably not i think i'll put this in the same category as a requiem for a dream where i like i'll watch it once i'll enjoy it and i'll never watch it again because i do think that there's a lot to really unpack and and for me to watch it again i think that my original viewing of it, I think that that in and of itself, while it's not good enough per se, I, I still think that the original viewing did a lot for me to really enjoy the film. And for me to watch it again, I think that takes a commitment, right? Three hours and 26 minutes of your time. That's a, that takes a long time, right? So um, I do think that this film's great, uh, but I don't think that this is a film that you can just put on while you're on a flight from LAX to LaGuardia. Like, I don't think that this is a flight that you put on for that. Like, like if you want to, like, be in a good mood, I don't put on this film. Um, is this my favorite film of Scorsese's? No, I still prefer Silence. I think Silence is my is the best film of Scorsese's. I really do think so. I, I know people will disagree with me, with me on that. I don't care. Silence is a great film. Andrew Garfield, Adam Driver did amazing jobs in that film. And again, it's a film that really showcases faith. You know, how willing are you to still have faith in your own religion despite having all these outside forces tell you that you're wrong for doing that? I think that it's a beautiful film. And I think regardless of your religion, I think you're going to really love it. Um, but yeah, overall, this was... Uh, this was a great film. You know, there, there was humor in this film as well. Uh, I don't know if it really played well in the theater because, again, this is this is a dark film. It is. It's just like murder after murder after murder. Again, I'm not spoiling anything here. It, this is in the synopsis of the film, right? If you look at the synopsis of the film, it basically says that, where Osage tribe members get murdered and murdered and murdered, and they have to do something about it. And that's what happens. Um but there was a lot of humor, especially in like the first act of the film, and people were laughing. But when there when there was humor in the second second act or in the third act, I felt as if a lot of the audiences were un were unaware of the humor. I felt as if it took some time for them to realize, oh, that was the funny part, or oh, that was funny. But in the grand scheme of things, there's still 
dark things happening in this film you know uh, I think that this is a, a film that r raises discussion. And I think in a lot of ways, if you are watching this with your friends, definitely go out in the parking lot and walk around and talk about the film. I think that's the best thing you can do with this film is that if you're watching this with a friend or with people within your family, the best thing you can do is walk around the theater and talk about it. That's the best thing you can do. I, I mean, I know that's kind of difficult with today's like social media world where every thought you have, you got to put it out on Twitter or everything you thought you have, you got to put it on Letterboxd, that dog shit of a movie discussion app. It, it is complete dog shit. That, that entire website is horrendous. I mean, even the users, the users are what makes that, that site horrendous to begin with. Because every time I go on a movie, or every time I, 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 I look up a movie on that site, the most upvoted comments or the most upvoted, yeah, the most upvoted comments on said movie are people just having this like quick, quirky, snappy, Big Bang Theory type of humor. And they use it as a way to summarize a film. I'm like, why? Like, if, like, just act normally. Like, why are you having this sort of quirky or, uh, or like, I'm different? I'm the actual nerd here. I'm the actual avant-garde critic here. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, gonna, I'm gonna make sure that this indie film director, who's who's made classic hits. I mean, I'm not talking about Scorsese. Obviously, he's accomplished, but I'm talking about other films. I want to make sure that I can show that this indie film director isn't as smart as I think he is, or I want to make sure that this indie film director thinks that I'm smarter than him. It just, it just, it's just so bad. That entire site is a headache in and of itself. Um, so yeah, I, I don't go there anymore. I don't go to that site anymore. But um, overall, Killers of the Fire Moon, definitely go watch it. I still prefer Oppenheimer. Uh, I still prefer Oppenheimer. And there are other, that is that one film that I still think is better than Killers of the Fire Moon. But yeah, the best picture race, I think the three films that are, are, that are on lock for the best picture race for the Oscars is definitely Greta Gerwig's Barbie, uh, Nolan's Oppenheimer, and Scorsese's Colors of the Flower Moon. Uh, we'll have to see about Napoleon. I think Napoleon has that Oscar baitiness to it. I, I like Ridley Scott, but I still think that Napoleon has that sort of biopic energy to it. So I think that that will also be nominated for best picture. Uh, it is weird to see a Napoleon film where they're not speaking French. I do find that hilarious. Like, come on, like, it's a Napoleon film. Like, let them speak French, right? Like, let them speak French, you know? It's like having, a, like, a, like, a film that documents Gandhi's life, but every time that, like, Gandhi's on screen, it's just, like, some dude that doesn't even have an accent. Like, it's just, like, some guy that was, like, all right, so let's have the salt march, you know? Like, like what? <laughs> like, like, no, like, like it's, it's like having a Gandhi film, but, like, making him wear, like, a suit and tie, and, and and just being and you know you know sleeping with of age people you know uh, <laughs> anyways um anyways uh Scorsese's goes to the flower moon definitely go watch it it's great um anyways guys I think that's it for the podcast today so guys thanks so much for watching thanks so much for listening make sure you guys like subscribe and click the bell icon for notifications down below make sure you subscribe to my podcast channel my podcast clips channel my stand up channel. Uh, make sure you rate and review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Give me a five-star review on, on Spotify. 
that's what matters. I really didn't appreciate that if you could do that. And last but not least, make sure you spread it through your uh, WhatsApp chains and through your group threads. To get more and more people involved and invest in this podcast is always a great sight to see. Um, you know, I don't know what I'll, I'll talk about for the next podcast episode. I really don't. But I assume it'll be more tennis and more things that are happening in our political and societal realm as well. So, guys, thanks so much for watching. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you guys on Tuesday. Uh, peace. Oh, I'm sorry. I'll see you guys on Thursday. Um, and we'll talk more about things that are happening in, our te in, in tennis and in our political realm as well. I got to go to sleep, guys. Uh, peace. See you all.